Hello there. Welcome back to Civil Action with Brian Kavitek and my sidekick, Sean Karnikian. Say hello, Sean. That's what I am now. Hello, Brian. Hello, everyone. What do we do on Civil Action on a weekly basis? We go over some interesting cases that have come down from the appellate circuit, both federal and state, the Supreme Court of the United States, Supreme Court of California. What kind of cases do we look at, Sean? Interesting cases. Interesting cases that affect... The plaintiff's bar. What we do here. What are we going to do today? We're going to go over a bunch of cases. Uh, We're going to talk about six cases. First, we have one that has to do with conversion of wages and an interesting rule there. Uh, Next, we're going to talk about 998s, a very practical and interesting subject, and some clarity as to what qualifies as the amount offered in the 998. Uh, We're going to talk about the arbitrability of UCL claims. Then we're going to talk about dangerous conditions of public property in a, in a, in a bad, what we think is a bad outcome. So you'll hear us uh, kind of rant about that issue. Uh, then we're going to talk about arbitration of ERISA claims or claims against uh, the management of an ERISA retirement fund. And lastly, we're going to talk about consenting to the jurisdiction of a magistrate judge and withdrawing that consent. And that's a federal case that we're going to be covering. And so not surprisingly, a lot of these cases today I would consider to be not great results and not great um, decisions. But before we get into the individual cases, Sean, where can people find us? They can find us online at kbklawyers.com and on all social media platforms. You, If you haven't already and you're still listening to this, thank you. Or we're curious what's wrong with you or because you haven't tuned out. But if you haven't subscribed, please go ahead and subscribe and leave us a review. Give us some feedback. Get in touch with us. We'd love to hear from you. People would like to know, Sean, why you're still here. Right, or, or you know, they can tell you. No, people what you really do, do want to know why. Why you're still I'm still here? here? I, I ask myself that every day. Good. I ask myself. So that every we're going to cover some interesting cases today. We do like to hear feedback, and uh, also if you've got issues you'd like us to cover, um, things that you'd like us to talk about on our podcast, we are happy to follow your instructions, and and we are here to serve you. So let's start with our very first case today. It's a case involving the California Supreme Court. It's called Voris versus Lampert, and it just came down very recently in the middle of August, August 15, 2019. And what is the significance of that date? It's my birthday. Very interesting. This was not the kind of birthday present I'd like to receive, even though I wasn't counsel on this case. Um, I didn't like this case. I thought this case was a little harsh. So the the gist of the case is that the plaintiff in this case – was somebody who would work for a company. It was a startup company. He had been promised wages. He was never paid his wages, never paid his income, ultimately goes to trial against the company and recovers what becomes with attorney's fees, costs, expenses, penalties, et cetera, about $350,000. Yeah, decent recovery. He, he, his, his wages were supposed to be in exchange for his contribution to the startup. Uh, but apparently some dispute happens. He, he gets either let go or they break up, and he gets this big award, and he can't collect. So he's having He can't trouble. collect because the companies that he worked for had either gone out of business or become insolvent or whatever the case may be, but he wanted to go after the actual individuals who were behind this, and he came up with a novel theory that this was effectively conversion. Right. So he went after the individual who was behind the company for conversion. And just so we know here, conversion, can, can you tell us what that is, Brian, where that comes from? Conversion is a, uh, is a very old tort. Conversion is a very specific tort in California law. It requires that there be uh, ownership or right of possession to either property or something that's distinguishable, um, and it requires um, the defendant to have deprived the person of the, uh, the right to that money, and then it ultimately requires um, 
that there be uh, wrongful conduct of some kind and resulting damage. So it's not just property, but it's identifiable things and amounts and things like that. For example, the court says stock, for example. There's a uniform rule of law that shares of stock in a company are subject to an action for conversion. But the question here, which is, I believe, a question of first impression, is whether or not there's a cognizable claim for uh, for conversion. That's a big word for you, cognizable. Cognizable. That's very good. Your parents are going to be very (laughs) proud of you for using cognizable. They, They don't listen anymore. We've lost our last few listeners. So uh, the the but the, before we get to the cognizable claim, whether you can assert conversion for a wage claim, but the important point is that money, generally speaking, is not usually subject to conversion, and the only exception to that is if the money is readily identifiable in a specific sum. So you have to be able to say that uh, I specifically deprived you of $10,000 that you were entitled to. I held your $10,000. I didn't give it to you. You were entitled to your $10,000. So the plaintiff's theory here, which I think is a novel theory, but it's not a complete stretch, is that the wages are earned when the work is performed and that the employer is supposed to pay the wages and the, wa- and the employer didn't pay the wages, right? Yeah, and the court goes into like the history of the fundamental employment relationship and the agreement to pay wages, and it kind of goes out of its way to say that this is an important principle, this is an important rule, and there can they almost agree that there can be conversion of wages. But then they take a, a sort of a side trip here, and the court, the, the California Supreme Court says, but what we're really being asked to do is expand the law. While surprising, isn't that what the Supreme Court often does? Um, and instead of explain the law, it's expand the law, and that there should be a public policy, because apparently that's what the plaintiff argued in the case, that there should be a public policy that anyone who deprives a person of his or her wages should be liable under conversion for those specific wages. And uh, then the Court of Appeal take or the, the Supreme Court rather takes a, a tour through the fact that the Labor Code has all right. these rules, right? Right. Yeah. They they kind of do a little overview of why it's so important and how uh, this is a right that needs to be safeguarded, and there has to be various ways for collecting. It even cites the this very example, this very situation where the guy did get it. He went through the traditional channels, got a judgment, couldn't collect. So this is his his proposal is the last resort. In, well, but in why wasn't there a claim under uh, Code of Civil Procedure Section 187, which allows you to amend the judgment afterwards to, to bring in the actual party debtor. who's responsible? Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't know. That's an avenue that should have been explored in a situation like this. And why wasn't there the, apparently alter ego? But it wasn't it wasn't perfect, so they weren't it wasn't pled with specificity. It. I think, and it's not super hard to do that. So there may be some other avenues here that that might have been foregone. Uh, but um, so know, then we, we get into now. the fact that that apparently there's a Senate bill called 588, is that right? 588 is the Senate bill that the Supreme Court cited, and they said, well, there is a Senate bill which has expanded the requirement and that officers and directors may actually be responsible for failing to pay wages, and that the employer... And enhances sanctions for ignoring a judgment like this. Right, employer may be required to post a bond under circumstances if wages are unpaid, and but then they go on to say that um, these legislative solutions may not be perfect. Yeah. But at the end of the day, the majority of the California Supreme Court said, no, you can't have conversion as a theory to collect wages. 
it's really strange. I don't know why they go out of their way to highlight the importance of this, and they over and over recognize how important this is, and then they go, "But, but we're not going to make that. We're not going to make that leap. We're not going to expand it." Right, but there's a dissent. So it's a great dissent. In this California Supreme Court, there's rarely dissents on these kinds of employment cases or in, on uh, civil cases in general. Usually, they're unanimous. And here's there's a dissent by Justice Quaylar. And it's a really well-written dissent. It's worth a read if anybody gets a chance to read it. But since you don't have probably time and you're listening to us instead, we'll kind of summarize what it says. First thing that the justice looks at is says, look, there's $350,000. This was in a situation where he was specifically promised this money. He was told he would get this money. It's a specifically identifiable sum. And why can't he bring a conversion claim? And Go ahead. And I think the dissent points out that the majority opinion recognizes that there's there's scenarios that he would be entitled to recover under a theory of conversion. For example, if if there was a share of real estate assets that had been converted, if there were other situations, if there was uh, proceeds from consigned goods that had been sold, there's all these uh, conceivable scenarios where the majority recognizes that he should be able to recover, but then they sidestep it. And then, but, and they, but, then, but then he goes on to say, to talk about what kind of a real problem in California wage theft is, and he says a recent study estimated that minimum... Wage violations alone cost California workers nearly $2 billion per year. Let that sink in. $2 billion a year. And this is taking away a tool for being able to recover and reduce some of that wage. And one of the things that the majority says is the conversion is just not the, quote, right fit, close quote, for for this kind of wrong. And um, Justice Quaylar looks at that and says, why isn't it the right fit? Why wouldn't that be exactly what we're talking about? It's a specific identifiable sum of money. You know what it is, and you're being deprived of it by the party that owes you that money. Why wouldn't that be the right fit? He points out that the majority finds that there's no presidential decision in California that has recognized a conversion claim. But then he points out that there's no no case in California that's refused to recognize a conversion claim. So it's not like the court's precluded from expanding this rule to uh, go to a conversion for wage claims, but... It, it's sort of an absurd result, and I think the uh, the dissent does a good job of pointing out all the problems with the majority opinion. All right, let's go to the next case. It's Hersey versus Volpava, and this case is out of the second DCA, the second district court of appeal in Los Angeles, and this case involves nine nine eights, right? It does involve it, it arises out of a landlord tenant dispute where habitability uh, really yeah it's, it's a, a habitability, habitability. case. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, without casting aspersions upon the plaintiff, it looks like the case was sort of ginned up to be a habitability case where there really wasn't much of an issue. It, it went to trial. Before trial, there was a 998 for $10,000, and then there was a second 998 yeah. after that for $20,001. Don't forget that dollar. $20,001. And what was the ultimate judgment of the court? Because it doesn't look like it was a jury verdict. What was the ultimate judgment? I think it was somewhere south of $10,000. It was around $7,000 something. Well, it was $7,438 if you had actually read the case and had your notes sitting in front of you. Sure. And uh, what happened there is that the plaintiffs got $7,438, and then they bring a... um, Motion afterwards for attorney fees that gets denied because of the 998. And in fact, what happens is the defense crushes them with an attorney fee claim and a cost bill claim 
of, I think, in excess of $30,000. $30,483. See, you did read the case. I did. Good for you. I Congratulations. did. Congratulations. So the case goes up in the Court of Appeal on the single question of whether or not the 998 for $10,000 or $20,001 was enough to foreclose the plaintiff from recovering anything in this case because of the $7,438 judgment, right? And and the question about what constitutes the 998 offer or what amount has to be beat or what's included in the final um, award when looking at whether or not you beat the 998 is kind of murky. Uh, I'm sort of unclear on that. Well, I think some, I think it'd be very straightforward in some cases. I mean, I think in a, in a simple uh, auto accident case where you're asking for $25,000 and you end up with a $50,000 um, verdict, for example, and you, I mean, the 998's for $25,000 from the plaintiff and they get a $50,000 verdict, I think it's fairly straightforward. I think the problem in this case is that the 998 failed to take into consideration the attorney fees and costs, Right. Right, and the and the court of appeals said that when calculating that net judgment, when looking at the number to consider um, against the nine nine eight offer, you need to include the attorney's fees uh, and costs in that number. Right, because there's case authority that says that if you're entitled to, you need to put that in there. And did the plaintiff end up with a judgment more favorable than the nine nine eight? And here's exactly what the court of appeals said. They said when you add the costs plus the attorney fees of about $500. So I think there was some agreement to limit the fees in the contract to $500. Right, it was contractual. And you add the costs that existed at the time of the $10,000 998, you're over um, the $10,000. When you add all three of those together, That's you're right. over it. So clearly the plaintiff beat the 998 there. They say it's not as clear with the $20,001 because we don't know how much are the costs, how much of the costs have been affirmed. But if the costs end up the cost plus the $7,438 plus the $500 in attorney fees ends up being more than $20,000, then the plaintiff did beat the 998. The is plaintiff the is entitled to its cost yep. of its expenses yeah. and is the prevailing party. If not, then the plaintiff loses. So, so that's a good illustration of that, of how it would shake out in a case like this. Yeah, and how would you get around this? Um you you could agree as part of your nine nine eight that part of the offer is a, a fixed amount, let's say ten thousand dollars. Plus, you can then make a motion for attorney's fees, right? Right. Yeah. Right. That's absolutely one way to do it. Or make the nine nine eight a little higher and say it, ex- it includes attorney fees. Well, you know what the attorney fees in this case were were five hundred, but normally you don't know them in cases. Right. So, uh, I guess the, the cautionary tale is be careful on these nine nine eights. Make sure you know what you're doing on these nine nine eights, especially if the case is going to go to trial. Okay, our third case today. Clifford versus Quest Software, Inc. It's from the 4th uh, Appellate District, and it has to do with the arbitrability of UCL claims. Isn't that a big word, arbitrability? Kind of hard to say. Arbitrability? Arbitrability. Yeah, you see? See? You're having trouble saying it. Well, maybe I had a little mini stroke. Okay, so here you have a, um, it's a wage, wage an hour type of claim. It's a claim by a former employee against this Quest software company, failure to pay wages, failure to pay overtime, meal and rest break issues. But the most important one that we need to focus on here is the unfair business practices under under 17200, which is a UCL claim. Uh, California's unfair what competition What does UCL law. stand for? Unfair competition law. Very good. League. Is it league? Is nope. it unfair competition No, nope. nope. it's nothing to do no. with Marvel Comics. No? Uh, no, like the L is not league? Okay. Unfair competition law... Um, and the purpose of this law, and this is kind of explained in an opinion. I like this opinion because it 
it sets out the rules pretty well. The purpose is to protect both consumers and competitors by promoting fair competition in commercial markets for goods and services, meaning not allowing a competitor to get to get an unfair edge by you know letting an employer not pay wages, but also to not allow the consumer or the the uh, employees to get screwed uh, when is that a legal term? Screwed, yeah, screwed is a, is a legal term. Look, the fundamental problem here is, the, I guess the real fundamental problem is the Federal Arbitration Act, the, the now-constituted uh, United States Supreme Court, which seems to think that the Federal Arbitration Act is next to the Bible. Actually, it may be more important to them than the Bible. And the um, continued movement of people into arbitration and out of the court system and depriving them of jury rights. Oh, we yeah. all know that. So, the, so what, what, what kind of happened here to set up the, the, the dispute or the issue that the court was considering was there's only two remedies available under the UCL, injunctive relief and restitution. Um, but there's various iterations of those types of relief. Um, there's private injunctive relief, public injunctive relief, private re- restitution of just one individual's uh, claim, uh, public restitution. So here there's a rule that the trial court cited. There's a, a case called the Brutton uh, Cruz case, which Broughton. comes from Broughton Cruz, which comes from two cases, Broughton versus Cigna, that's set under the CLRA, another consumer protection statute. Um, injunctive relief claims are not arbitrable. And then the Cruz case that said that Claims for public injunctive relief are not arbitrable. However, the issue here is... So the upshot, just to be very clear, though, the upshot of that rule is that claims that involve public injunctions, protecting the public, are not arbitrable under any circumstance because it involves protecting the public. That's kind of quasi-governmental. That's right, yeah. Um, So it's not arbitrable. However, here, Quest argued on appeal that Clifford's injunctive relief claim only seeks private injunctive relief. Right. In the court so that of, Cruz rule doesn't apply. The Court of Appeals seemed to jump on the fact that what they were talking about here was uh, uh, the private issue versus the public issue, yep. the pleading issue. It looks like the plaintiff in the case was trying to argue, no, 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 that's not what we mean. We want to bring a PAGA, meaning a private attorney general action. We're planning to bring one of those. And the court said, you know, it's not here. It's not in front of us. And the yeah. only thing in front of us is this private injunction in order to adjudicate the plaintiff's individual private rights. Yeah. So to my, my two takeaways from this is courts are going out of their way to enforce arbitration clauses, but the cautionary tale is be careful with the pleadings here. It was framed as a private injunctive relief question because the plaintiff only alleged all that stuff about preliminary and permanent injunctive relief as to plaintiff only in the singular, not referring to the class, not referring to other employees. So maybe if it was phrased differently, this case wouldn't have come down the way it did. Right. So. I mean, it's a, it could have been a pleading issue. You know, sometimes right. I also wonder if the Court of Appeal bends over backwards to find the particular did. result they that they wanted to find here. And the plaintiff is sitting there saying, no, wait, I didn't do that. That didn't happen. Next case, Huerta versus City of Santa, Santa Ana. Ana. This is a very interesting case um, and a very important case to understand what the rule is for governmental liability, particularly with respect to, to generally highway design. But we have to unfortunately start with these insanely sad facts. Sad facts. Um, so the the plaintiff's three little girls were out on Halloween night on 2014 and they were tragically killed when they got struck in an intersection by a car. Um, there was a speeding motorist exceeding the speed limit coming down. Kids were crossing the street. Uh, driver fled the scene, um, pled guilty to vehicle manslaughter. But the case was brought, this case, 
was the one against the city for the design of the roadway. The plaintiffs alleged that, um, and, and not without support, they have plenty of support for this argument. Yeah, we'll, that the but we'll get to bad. that. Yeah. They said yeah. that a large tree was blocking the light, that there was only one light. There was a large shadow in the crosswalk. It made it unreasonably dark at night that the driver probably didn't see it. I wonder... Um, if they were able to coordinate with the criminal attorney, a lot of times coordinating with the criminal attorney in these types of cases to kind of put on a unified uh, affirmative case against the city in defense about the lighting that caused it would would help. Um, And so the Court of Appeals starts off by saying, look, it's along the law in the state of California that a city has no specific duty to light its streets, but that there are exceptions, of course, when they do light the streets. And those exceptions are if there's a peculiar condition um, that necessitates it, meaning you know, if, if it's like unreasonably dark or something like that. If if there's something, what's the term of art is peculiar condition that makes that type of lighting necessary. Otherwise, they're not on the hook. They don't need to light the streets. Right. So here, the court of appeals said yes, there was an expert who opined in opposition to what must have been a summary judgment motion. Mm-hmm. The expert on behalf of the plaintiff opined that it was unreasonably dark. They focus on the fact that the expert had gone out a year or two after the event and done a test. Uh, I don't see the relevance of that. What are you supposed to do? Get an expert there the next day. The families usually don't hire lawyers until much later. And then they focus on, as you said, um, the peculiar condition doctrine, the condition of the, of the public roadways. Uh, and here, though, is where, in my opinion, Sean, I think they completely go off the rails. Oh, yeah. They, they start making factual findings that I don't think – uh, the courts, neither the trial court or the court of appeal, should have done. For example, let's just give a couple sure. specific examples. Sure. For example, quote, we cannot say how a tree could have cast a shadow. Quote, the light could not have created a shadow that that um, could have overseen the area of impact. Um, if it's clear from the data that the tree had no effect of reducing the level, the expert does not relate the opinion to conditions on the night. I mean, they go down the line and act as fact finders. Yeah, it's and I just don't follow it. And it's not like it's a black and white um, fact here that like, you know, the plaintiff is saying the tree was on one side of the street and the defendant says it's on the other. And look, if you look at a map, it's on the other and they're clearly wrong. No, it's a question of whether or not there was a shadow and that shadow obstructed someone's ability to see the kids that were crossing the street that got killed. They say it's, the case it's, is it's, virtually it's, indistinguishable with a case called Mixon. Uh, an, if you read that, it's not. It is distinguishable. It's not exactly the same scenario. Uh, I, I don't know. I, I and and then the ins- to add insult to injury, at the end of the case, they award um, cost to the city. Yeah, affirming the judgment. Yeah. But there is a dissent. There's a dissent, and it's a great dissent. It's and a good the, dissent. It's everything we've been ranting and raving about, but phrased a lot more articulate. For example, the dissent focuses on the fact that multiple eyewitnesses testified the area was poorly lit on the night in question, including one witness who testified that it was, quote, pitch black. Yeah. And then it goes on to say um, that they, the expert that was hired by the plaintiffs cited the American Association of State Highway and Transportation Officials to show that this violated – And then ultimately the the Court of Appeal, the dissent, picks on the majority and says this is judicial fact-finding, which is exactly what I thought, that there are tribal issues of material fact. Very sad case. The one thing I will say about this is even though the chances of the Supreme Court granting review are very slim, it often helps if there's a dissent. And here there's a dissent and a strong dissent. Yeah, so if Brian and I were on the Supreme Court, we would – uh, reverse and remand. And we are not on the Supreme Court, in case you were wondering, we're not? in case one okay. of our listeners is wondering. So our, our opinions are not binding? 
Yeah, it's unfortunate, though, because I think I'd be great on the Supreme Court, don't you? Sure, no. You'd be very dangerous. Why? Because you're not a stable genius. I'm a very stable genius. Yeah, well. All okay, right. Next case is Dorman versus Charles Schwab. Um, this has to do with the arbitrability of ERISA claims or claims arising out of like an ERISA plan. Uh, this guy worked for Schwab for many years from 2009 to 2015. At some point in 2014, and he had a retirement plan with Schwab, an ERISA uh, retirement plan. Um, in 2014, the plan was amended to add an arbitration provision. So he brought claims. The district court uh, and uh, obviously Schwab to uh, moved to compel arbitration. The district court said, "No, there's this case from 1984 called Amaro, which specifically says that ERISA claims are not arbitrable." Okay, I love Amaro, but before we get to Amaro, we have to talk about Italian Colors. Italian sure. Colors apparently is a restaurant in the Bay Area that ended up in the Supreme Court, not the restaurant itself. It's not like the Supreme Court has a restaurant called Italian Colors. Wow. No. But the Supreme Court had a case called Italian Colors, which expanded even further the Federal Arbitration Act um, to cases that involve contract disputes and and uh, disputes between businesses, not just consumer cases, right? Yep. Not just consumer yep. cases. Uh, and so now we can go to Amaro. So go to Amaro, right. Sean. Tell us so, about Amaro. And this is from the opinion. Uh, the the uh, the uh, appellate court here, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeal, points out that in Amaro, they ruled that ERISA cases, cases are not arbitrable. And the reasoning behind that was, and this is a quote from Amaro, arbitrators, many of whom are not lawyers, lack the competence of courts to interpret and apply statutes as Congress intended. Isn't that a damn good reason for not enforcing of arbitration? Of course. Clauses? I mean, there's so many reasons like, for not enforcing. And then, But then the Ninth Circuit, maybe tongue-in-cheek, goes on to say the Supreme Court has since ruled that arbitrators are, in fact, competent yep. to interpret and apply federal statutes. And it cited um, the American Express Italian Colors case. And then um, in this case... What ultimately they said was ERISA cases now are subject to arbitration, that it has to be – that an arbitration clause is binding, and they have to be uh, – they have to be arbitrated. In this case, has to be arbitrated. But interesting – the last interesting part about this case is that the, um, the Ninth Circuit said the normal rule is that a three-judge panel, which is always what you have initially in the Ninth Circuit unless you go on banc with 11 judges, a three-judge panel can't overrule precedent of the Ninth Circuit unless there is clear intervening Supreme Court authority to the contrary, and then the panel can make that determination. Here they found that Italian Colors was intervening authority to the contrary, and they effectively overruled themselves. They go out of their way in like a five-page opinion, just just take care of it there, kind of ensure that... Have you ever noticed how Ninth Circuit opinions are much, much shorter than California Court of Appeal opinions. Why do you think that is? I don't know. Lazy? Maybe. Is it? Maybe. Yeah. Maybe. We're not lazy. We're not lazy. We work very hard to to do this every week, and then we relax the rest of the time. We have drinks. This is the final case. You're almost done having to listen to us. Right. I love this case because Gilmore versus Lockhart, it's a Ninth Circuit Court of Appeal case. It deals with magistrate judges and the ability to, to put a magistrate judge on and when you have the right to opt in and opt out of magistrate judges, and I, I realize that most people don't encounter this in their daily practice, but it's important to understand. But the real reason I love this case is, is there a case with a factual background 
that more reminds you of what it's like to work at this law firm. For working for Brian. So, yeah, to, to give that a little bit of color, let me uh, say what happened here. The plaintiff here is an inmate at a uh, federal uh, prison. Right. So right there you can relate to him. Right. Already. He's, he's, he's serving time, just like me. Um, and at some point there's a fight that breaks out between two non-parties. And two other inmates. Two other inmates, Which yeah. you can relate to also. Sure, because there, there's other people here serving time alongside me. Um, and the fight breaks out, some alarm is hit, and the protocol is, when this alarm hits, what, what do they have to do? They have to, they have to. I called it assume the position. They have to drop about. on they, the they, ground, They have right? to prone out. Prone out. Prone out. Which is, you, you have to After lie down. After the alarm goes up, which, which is what do. happens here at Cabotec right. when Brian gets upset about something. We have to prone out. Everybody. Yeah. Yeah, and then what happened? So <laughs> apparently, Locker, the plaintiff, takes a long time getting down on the ground, and then uh, they shoot him with what is referred to as a sponge, which I'm assuming is a really painful beanbag that he gets shot with. Which is again what Brian resorts to. Nope, when- it was Gilmore. Lockhart was the guard. Oh, and that's so our, I'm Gilmore sorry. didn't yeah. drop yeah, Gilmore. and assume the position. Gilmore, Gilmore didn't. Gilmore drop. then gets shot with a what is it? A sponge? They refer to it which as like a I'm sponge right shot now. I'm right now online with Amazon ordering one of these. Brian's looking one of to these see guns. if he can buy that. I don't think private citizens should be allowed to own those. But uh, Second Amendment. Yeah, and then he gets pepper sprayed, which Brian also often uses in the office. Right. Us. We're kidding. If anyone's listening to this from the state bar, these are jokes. Um, please, as send far help. as we're concerned, please send help. Um, and anyway, ultimately he gets injured, his glasses break, he's slammed into a uh, um, wall, and he has a face injury, something like that. So anyway, yeah, so he, he has his, all these claims. But files the important part about this case is it ends up in federal court. In federal yep. court, you have an absolute constitutional right to a federal district court judge, but you can stipulate out of the federal district court judge, which for a number of reasons, which include bad judges appointed by bad presidents, also includes the the calendaring and the ability to get mm-hmm. a jury trial um, with the judges who have these very busy active calendars, and a million other reasons why you might want the magistrate. You judge. could stipulate to a magistrate. You could, it's called consenting to a magistrate. So judge what did Gilmore do? Section 636C. Um, so here, Gilmore, the plaintiff, did consent to a magistrate. Right. But... Defendant had not consented to a magistrate. And then what happened? The magistrate judge gave a bad ruling on a discovery dispute. Against? Uh, against the defendant. No, against Oh, against Gilmore. the plaintiff. Against the, we were doing so well sorry, up to that. yeah, that was pretty good. Against Gilmore. And then what happened? Gilmore decided to withdraw his consent. And then what happened? The defendant, who hadn't yet consented, did consent. But two years later. Two years later, yeah. Two and so later. then it went to a, a trial on this issue in front of the magistrate judge. Yep. And what happened? Um, the, the plaintiff lost. And then the plaintiff's issue on appeal was I had the right to opt out of the magistrate judge. They didn't grant my uh, Motion opt to withdraw out. consent, exactly. Because uh, that same section that allows for consent has a procedure from, for withdrawing consent. And um, the so, lower court had denied that motion or that request to withdraw. Right. So all, all of our little jokes aside here, uh, ultimately the ruling of the court was that because the magistrate judge had not been stipulated to formally by the defendants in this case for two years later, two years after he had withdrawn his consent, the plaintiff's withdrawal of consent was good. It's, it's firm and final once all parties have consented. But before all parties consent... A party can withdraw his or her or its consent. That's what the plaintiff in this case did. That's what was valid. And under those circumstances, the withdrawal should have been granted and the case should have gone to a district court judge. And as a result of that, what happened, Shant? Reversed and remanded. And what does that mean for our cases today? 
we're done? Correct. That's good news for you. You can stop listening if you hadn't already tuned out. And But for those of you that are still listening, thank you very much. We're always interested in what you have to say. We're always interested in what, uh, what we can do to make these better and to make them more interesting for you. And uh, thank you for listening. So, Sean, just finish off by telling people where they can find us. You can find us at kbklawyers.com. You can find us on all social media platforms. Please subscribe. Leave us some reviews. Tell Brian how bad he is. And tune in next time. Thank you.